This morning I want to talk to you about one of the most pressing questions you'll ever have in your life, and it's this. Who am I? The answer to this question is every implication of life, every struggle, every blessing, every means of worry, every time of contention, all forms of education, all forms of blessing, all comes a result of how you answer this question. What is my identity? Now, identity can simply be defined as the fact of being who or what a person is. And most of us, if we're not careful, we'll define ourselves, we'll answer that question with a subjective experience. Our best moment, that's who we are. Or tragically, our worst moment. That's who we are. Today we will find from the first page of the Bible how God begins to answer this question in your life. And I'll tell you this, until you understand why you are here and who put you here, you will not have lasting peace and joy. And that is why we, as we journey together to reach people in Broken Arrow, in Coweta, in Tulsa Metro, and the state of Oklahoma for his glory, we must take this story together and we must assess from the first page of the Bible how God's story changes ours. And it's his grace and his power and his blessing and his faith in your life that is truly never-ending. And the one thing I want you to get before you walk in and do life, literally, honestly, something as your pastor, I'll be teaching you until they put me in the ground, is that you were made by God. And God tells us this in His Word. The book of Genesis is one of the most fascinating books of the 66 books God gives us in His canon. It's of a book written by a man named Moses. And Moses starts from the first page and really has this beautiful summary in Genesis 1 of God and us. And he gives us 50 chapters, two separate sections in which you and I work out that implication. All of life is about God and his glory. And thus, God is bearing and commissioning and sending us as his people to live that out. So from Genesis 1, 2, and 3, he gives us a trivial view of histories. This is who we are in line of what God has done. He then, from Genesis 2-4, all the way through Genesis 50, verse 26, gives us real men and women, boys and girls, who begin to live out this implication that everyone is made by God and dependent upon God and cannot exist without God. All of life is a means of living out this truth. You were made by God. And it's with this in mind that we direct our minds and hearts to Genesis 1, 26. And your Bible says this, then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Who am I? You are not the mundane end to an evolutionary process or chance. You are not what you have. You are not what you do. You are not your failures. You're not what others think of you. You're not your emotions or your feelings. You are not your worst moment or your best moment. 
But rather, the Bible says that you are an essential part of a divine plan, pattern, and thus purpose. That God, as sovereign creator, creates in an ascending order humanity as his crowning achievement of creation. Do you have any idea how profound you are in God's plan? Let me just give you an instance. In Genesis 1, Moses details to us six consecutive days of creation. And if we're not careful, thousands of years later, it's like, oh yeah? We'll just kind of begin to forget the magnanimity of this text. For instance, did you realize the Bible says that on day one, God created the light and divided from darkness? Did you realize that the speed of light is 670 million miles per hour? That literally the speed of light travels around the earth's circumference seven and a half times per second. And yet God did it one day. On day two, the Bible says that God created the sky and separated from the waters below. Scientists tell us that literally from the ground to the tip of the atmosphere is 62 miles. God did that in one day. On day three, the Bible says that God created the sea and he blessed the land. Literally 326 million cubic miles. 72% of the earth is saturated with water, yet God did it one day. On day four, the Bible says that God created the sun and the moon and the stars. Astronomers now tell us that there are billions and billions of galaxies and approximately one billion trillion stars. God made all of it in one day. In fact, the psalmist tells us that Jesus Christ himself placed those stars, every single one of them in the galaxy, one day. The Bible tells us in day five that God created the animal life, both sea and sky. God made the dolphins and the cardinals and the falcons and all the other lousy NFL teams, right? God did all of that in one day. And on day six, God created the animal life for the land and human life to rule over that creation. And in day seven, he rested. Oh, praise God. I'm just exhausted explaining it. He rested. The crowning achievement of all of God's creation is not light, is not land, is not the waters, or the mountains, or the sea, or its creatures, or animals, but you, for you were made by God. God made everything that is not God, and God made you which means your identity has a profound impact on how you do life in and for God. The Bible says in Genesis 1:26, then God said, let us make men. You see that plural pronoun there, us? It's reflective. It's purposeable. It's striking. You see, in Moses' culture, most inhabitants were polytheistic. They believed in many, many gods. In fact, a majority of them were pantheists. They believed everything was God. So the more gods for them, the better. Statue, God. Tree, God. Sun, God. Moon, God. 
The wind, it's a God. The rain and the thunder, God. No, no, no. Moses says there's one true God. And he uses a specific title. Let, let us make. You see, in the Hebrew is the only Semitic language that intensifies nouns by making them plural. And so he uses here this plural of majesty grammatically to separate God from all of his creation. That there is one who stands above. There is one who is transcendent. There is one who is a designer to this design, a creator to this creation. And that same God made you. That's Moses' point. Mankind is the direct result of God's plan, God's purpose, and God's action. For we were made by the mighty, majestic, triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit Himself. Up until now, God had never spoken into the plural. And notice, the text already assumes that God exists. Moses doesn't explain God. Moses doesn't build this theological treatise about God. He just says God simply is. And God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness. Did you realize that there are 15 separate instances of God creating humanity in the Old Testament? Here's one of my favorite. It's Psalm 100 verse 3. Know that the Lord, He is God, for it is He who made us, and we are His. Let us make man. In the Hebrew, that word man there is literally Adam. It it just means man. It, It can mean contextually taken from the ground. And historically, this happened in Genesis 2, 7. For the Bible says, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. See that? and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. The imagery there is of a potter who meticulously and intimately and purposefully and thus majestically designs a pot to be used. God created Adam full grown and distinct from all creation. As a part of being in God's image, Adam and Eve, and subsequently all of you and I in between, will have a distinct uniqueness about us because we come from God himself. So Adam had a distinct amount of fingerprints that weren't like anybody else. Adam had his own unique DNA, which has 99% of that DNA matches all of us, but that, oh, that 0.1% is so vast and unique that still Physicists can't describe it today. Adam had a unique brain and mind and conscience. In fact, the one thing that distinguishes all of us is our brain anatomy. Not one of us has identical brain anatomy. We're each uniquely created and fabricated and created by God Himself. Adam had 78 organs, five senses, and arguably probably a receding hairline already, right? As a grown man. He was able from his inception to function and to fulfill the design purpose in which he was created for. Let us make man in our image 
and after our likeness. Do you see these two words right here in verse 26? Image and likeness. Did you realize that this is the only place in the Old Testament where image and likeness appear in connection with one another? It's very important. You want to know why? Because likeness here is amplifying image. Moses' point is that your ultimate purpose is found in God and from God. That you and I have the capacity not just to bear God's image, but rather be made in His likeness, represent God on His behalf for His glory. Which means then that you have, as a part of a design and plan, an identity that finds its ultimate purpose in God and from God. For God made you. And thus, all of life is to be about God. Moses sets this up for us by, by using this, this beautiful contextual word in the Hebrew, salim. It means image. One to represent in physical form. To resemble in shape. It can just aptly be translated statue. It's a word that Moses uses five times in Genesis. And to the, the context of his readers, they knew exactly what he was talking about. You see, in Egyptian and Mesopotamian societies, those citizens believed that in some ways the idols or images of their kings associated or represented their kings in their presence. So let me say that a little bit more clearly. Kings would place statues all around their provinces to remind people of the king's domain and authority. That if you saw these images, if you saw these statues, then you knew that they were representative of such king. And the moment that you went beyond them, that you were under the domain and authority of such king. In fact, archaeologists have, have dug, dug up research of this, of Alexander the Great, arguably one of the greatest conquerors the world has ever seen. His empire went from Egypt to Mesopotamia to Persia to even some parts of India. And you know what they found? Statues of Alexander the Great and his generals. Why? Because Alexander the Great was following a generational pattern of marking his territory and conquest. And the moment that you passed those markers, you were under the domain and authority of whoever is ruling that land. Notice, God, through the Holy Spirit, takes Moses' words and describes not statues or markers, but you. Moses uses here royal language as images used figuratively to convey mankind as God's representatives, His vice regents, to rule the earth on His behalf. So who am I? I'm not some subjective experience. My identity does not come in my failures, what I do well, or what I do poorly. My identity does not come in my past. My identity comes from God, 
who allows me the privilege to bear his image and to represent his likeness as we obey God's word and will for our lives. Which means that being made in the image of God has profound implications on your life. Thousands of years removed from this text. You said, but what does that look like? Let me give you three thoughts on that. Who am I? You're an image bearer. You have the potential to bear and to represent God's image and thus His glory. You didn't earn God's image. He simply gives it to us by grace and for His glory. God gave you a body and a soul and a personality and emotions and feelings and a rational mind. Why? In order so that you could willingly and willfully respond to God. Which means then that all of life and all of your life is either one or two things, self-word or God-word. This is either about me, my betterment, my future, my family, my life, or this is about God and His kingdom and His glory and me embracing the destiny that He has for each of us made in His image. So few people, even those of us in Christ, which we'll find shortly, truly realize the magnitude of what it means to be in the image of God. The philosopher C.S. Lewis said it well when he said, if you read history, you will find that Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought the most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Now, tragically, most churches fall right in line with that statement. You are an image bearer for the one true God Himself. Secondly, you were made by God and for God. Now let that set for a minute because I'll probably be teaching you the implications of this truth for the rest of my life. You were made by God and for God. Thus everything in life is meant to be for God and God alone. As mankind is meant to bear His image and His glory. And thus God has given us a spiritual nature enabling us to know and worship Him. God desires a personal relationship with you. Now think about that for a minute. The same God who in Genesis 1 created light that travels seven and a half times per second around the earth desires a personal relationship with you. 
The same God that created the earth and the sky and the atmosphere, 62 miles up from the ground, desires a personal relationship with you. The same God who made the sea and the land, 326 million cubic miles, desires a personal relationship with you. The same God who made the sun and the moon and the stars and the sea creatures and the birds of the sky and the animals of the land desires a personal relationship with you. (laughs) Has, Has there ever been a relationship that you didn't deserve to be in? Felt so unworthy to be a part of? Guys, I'm trying to help you out here. Like, squeeze your wife's hand. Give her, give her a nudge, something. Amen, preacher. Yeah, yeah, something, right? But yet God desires a personal relationship with you, which means then that all of our life must be thinking on God, making our decisions for God, making our words about God, and allowing our actions to follow God's Word and God's will for your life. If all of life is about God, then all things in my life are to be for God. So our thoughts are to be on God. God wants your mind. He wants you to wake up in the morning and say, God, you've started this day. It's a beautiful day, and you're in charge. You're in control. And when things go good, he wants you to praise him. Lord, it's about you and your goodness. When things go bad, he wants you to trust him. God, I trust you. I don't understand, but I trust you because you're good and you're faithful. And when the day ends, Lord, thank you for helping me make it through the day. Give me another one for your glory. Our thoughts are to be on God. Secondly, our decisions are to be for God. The end of your decisions should be for God. Remember, is this self-word or God-word? And if it's self-word, I can assure you, besides God's grace, that's about all you get. God promises not to bless that. None. It's not about Him. No promise of blessing. None. Of course His grace is sufficient. But if this is for God, if the end of this is not to make much of me, but to make much of Him, man, get after it. Go do it. Thirdly, our words are to be about God. Jesus says it like this in the New Testament. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth, what? Speaks. So regardless of of what others' perceptions are about us, regardless of our perceptions about ourselves, what's really going on on the inside will come out in regard to content on the outside, Jesus says. So what is it that we are communicating? Is it about God? Think of your conversations this week. Did he even come up? Like one time, friends, co-workers, life, how many times is he coming up? got to remind ourselves, you were made by God and for God. So our thoughts are on Him, our decisions are for Him, our words are about Him. Ah, actions. Let's move. Actions follow 
God's word and will for your life. And really, from Genesis 2, 3, through the rest of this book, Revelation 22, 21, you and I are living out these four principles. You were made by God to live for God. Thus, our thoughts are on God, our decisions are for God, our words are about God, and our actions follow God's word and God's will. And you will find real people in this book that if they're in alignment to those things, blessing. If they're out of alignment to those things, things get awkward really, really quickly. Really quickly. You were made by God and for God. Because you were made in His image. And you were made by God. Uh, Thirdly, we were made by God to love and depend upon God. How many of us know this? How few of us believe it? Can I tell you how profound the simple song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. How profound that truth is. Can I tell you humbly that I've been your pastor for, by God's grace, you know, three weeks or whatever it is? And can I tell you that you need to know how much God loves you? That, that there's just a, a theology in and amongst us that we just need to know God loves me. Can I just tell you that as your pastor is one of the most profound truths that I'll remind you day in and out is that he loves you. He doesn't love the idea of you. He doesn't love the thought of you. He doesn't love the you of your best and the you of your worst. He just loves you. And there's nothing that you have done that can make God love you more. And there's nothing that you can do to make God love you less. He just loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. Let me say that another way. God does not have to start loving you because God never stopped loving you. And it will be His grace through His love that will sustain you in this life, both in times of bearing our own image in self and by God's grace and goodness, bearing His image for His glory. So as we trust Him and depend upon Him, can we even in our identity now know that our standing before Him is solely by grace? That regardless of how much education or regardless of how much God blesses us professionally and personally, that we always fall short? That we've missed His mark? Do you not understand now the New Testament writers when they say, for all have fallen short of God's glory. All of us have come to the point where we have not reached who we are. And thus we need a Savior. And even from the book of Genesis, God in recollection with himself as the divine triune being, God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, is saying, let us make man in his image and likeness. You want to know why? Because even then they knew that just as you and I, being who we are, would choose not to trust God or depend upon God or love God but ourselves, God was always faithful to love and trust and depend upon us. 
And so knowing that God knew it was impossible for us to work our way to Him, so He comes to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And where humanity was created in God's image, Jesus is God's image. In fact, if I could give one verse to really maximize this time together from the New Testament, it would be Colossians 1.15. No, don't turn there. Just, just let this soak in. If we were to go from Genesis 1 to Colossians 1, you would literally see this pendulum of history. These ridiculously talented individuals that God would bless. And instead of blessing God, honoring God, loving God, choosing God, they would choose themselves. They would give blessing and honor to other gods, gods of the Canaanites and gods of the Egyptians and gods of other kingdoms and civilizations in that part of their country. Yet one faithful standard was God's grace and God's love toward them. And you see here now, That God has gone from Adam and Eve, created in His image, but yet fell, chose not to trust God's Word and God's will and God's ways. Yet just as quick in the rebellion, God was even faster in His rescue. And so then you see Noah in Genesis 6, and you see once again God showing mercy upon Noah and his family. You see a man by the name of Abram in Genesis 12 who was more likely a pagan at the time from Ur. But yet God showed grace and came to him and said, go leave your family and your kindred. Trust and depend upon me and be blessed. And the nations will never be the same. Then you have God setting up his word for his people and God then ruling through a group, the smallest tribe of his kingdom, and yet blessing them and destroying empires along the way. And yet for the most part, God's people wouldn't love and depend upon him. They just loved and depended upon themselves. And then God gave them kings. And instead of trusting God, they began to trust man. But yet God was still faithful in his love for them. And the entire time, God is sending a message to them that there's one that's coming, and there's one that will come for you and will provide rescue and peace and lasting joy. And though you made in my image, he is my image. And now you have Paul, the greatest Old Testament theologian that we've ever been exposed to, saying in Colossians 1 verse 15, He, being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is the image of God. You see the same word there? It's not describing here this feeble, weak imitation, but rather an outward reflection of something's inner core and essence. Paul says that it is Jesus who makes God visible. That's his point. As God is, Jesus is. And he is the firstborn of all creation. He said, well, wait a minute. Wasn't, wasn't Adam the first one created? Adam was. That's not Paul's point. 
Paul isn't speaking here chronologically, but rather positionally in regard to inheritance, rank, and authority. Paul's point is in Colossians 1.15 that Jesus, through his perfect relationship with the Father, inherits all rights and privileges from God who gives it to him as the supreme reigning king and thus the Son of God. So what does that mean for us? God, in His divine plan, from Genesis 1, caused Jesus to bear the weight and guilt of our sin. Thus, every sin we commit in thought, word, and action, Jesus willingly paid for through His sinless death on a cross. And because Jesus is our sufficient, sacrificial Savior, gave His life for us, what is true of Jesus, the image of God, can be true in our lives by faith. In fact, Paul says it better when he says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Consequently, Jesus' perfect righteousness and obedience in his sinless life is credited, given to us in Christ by faith. And thus it is Jesus as the image of God, who is both the perfect representation, substitute, and Savior. And by faith in Him, through the Holy Spirit, you and I can begin to renew and to restore the image of God in and through us as our identity is secure. You see, all of us fall short. All of us were made by God. All of us were image bearers. By God to live for God. But if we're honest, we've lived for ourselves. And thus we need a Savior. But we can turn from that way of thinking and we can place our full faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So we were made by God and we were saved through Christ. And thus We are alive in Christ. This is our identity now. This is where we rest and play and thrive until we go to be with the Lord or He comes in return for us. And and can I tell you, Paul, if we were to use him as a New Testament writer, wrote 13 books in the New Testament, he, he never got over this truth. Never. In fact, did you realize that he uses this phrase, in Christ, 160 separate times in the New Testament. Which means then, as we walk out of here and do life, I want to give you four action points, four from this text, to immediately apply in your life. You were made by God, saved through Christ, and now you're alive in Christ. What's that mean for my life? One, in Christ, my past or shame is no longer my representative Christ is. That my identity is is not in what I do well or what I do poorly. 
what I should have done or won't do. No, my identity is in Christ. And what is true of Him before the Lord is positionally true of me. I am in Christ. And thus, my life now is not for victory or for blessing, but from victory, from blessing, as we obey and apply the Word of God and the will of God in our lives. Secondly, in Christ, I'm no longer united to my sin, but to Christ. The moment we give our lives to Christ, our life changes from the inside out. And thus our desires begin to change. Where once we loved ourselves, now we actually begin to, no, no, Lord, what doesn't please me, but what pleases you? Because pleasing you pleases me. Remember what Jesus says in John 15? He says, for I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing, but with me, you can bear much fruit. Sin no longer defines us. Christ does, for we are in Christ. Thirdly, in Christ, I am justified or declared righteous, not by what I do or don't do, but through faith in what Jesus Christ has already done. You see, if we're not careful, we'll make our identity about performance and how well we do at something. It becomes exhausting because day in and day out, we have to perform. No, when we realize that we're in Christ, that it's not on what we do or don't do, but what, through faith and what Jesus has already done. My, my favorite gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is John. And the last words of Jesus on the cross in John 19, verse 30, is what? It is finished. Can I just give you that promise today that in Christ? I mean, for those who are struggling this morning for not ever being enough, not not truly ever wondering if what you're doing is is okay or if it's ever going to make it, can can, can you just, it's finished. Don, I'm in Christ now. And the last words of Jesus on the cross is it is finished in John 19.30? His first words to his disciples three days later after he's risen from the dead is found in John 20, verse 21. You know what it is? Peace be with you. And can I just tell you that in the beauty of the gospel today that you can come as you are right now to Christ and you can bring your past and your guilt and your shame and you can say it is finished. And can I tell you that you can bring that to a king who is alive and who desires to fulfill his purpose in you, and he can say, peace, peace be with you, for you are in Christ. I think finally, in Christ, I no longer worry if I'm ever good enough because I've been chosen and pardoned and accepted and adopted by God the Father. Can I bless you today with this glorious truth that Jesus is enough? And as a result of who He is and what He has done, that if you place your trust in Him who is ultimately good, that you are not this random chance of some evolutionary process. You are not your failures, your failures, 
You are not your work, but rather you are chosen, pardoned, accepted, and adopted by God the Father who sees you for who you truly are. Not a disobedient sinner, but rather a son and a daughter of a king who loves you, who chose you, who accepted you, who pardoned you, and who has adopted you into his family. Don't you see why, church, from the first page of the Bible, why our identity is so important? Your identity is not in some subjective experience. It's not in your emotions or in your feelings. Your identity comes from the truth that you were made by God, saved through Christ, and thus are alive in Christ. May God's story truly change ours as we live out that glorious truth for Him that you were made by God.